0: The History of Literature Podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lithub Radio.
1: That's the Negro Spiritual I've Been Buked by the Georgia Spiritual Ensemble. We're talking about Georgia today, the land of smoke and dusk and fire and the sugarcane fields that inspired our subject, the author Gene Toomer. We'll get to that. But I want to start with a personal story. As I was reading through the works of Gene Toomer, his fiction, his poetry, and everything I could find about his life, I was reminded of someone you've probably never heard of, Larry Knudsen. Larry Knutson, a high school basketball star. There's no reason for you to know him. He was important to me, but only because of where I was and who I was at the time. I was a coach's kid. I think I've talked about this before. My grandfather was a somewhat famous coach, a big man in a small town. My father was less famous, but he was a good coach, too. He was more of a teacher. Kids grew under his wing. And I was the team manager. On Friday nights, I'd go and watch the varsity play with the band and the lights and the crowd and the warm gym. For a 10-year-old kid in Wisconsin that was about like walking down Broadway. It had that kind of excitement. And then on Saturday mornings, I'd wake up early and ride with my dad into the city. We'd stop for donuts. Then we'd get to the high school where the athletes, my heroes, were congregating outside the gym and we'd all pile into a van and go and play a junior varsity game and i was just starting to understand class and race this city it's become kind of famous recently because a book has come out talking about the demise of the american auto industry and the loss of union jobs and the trail of devastation that that's left behind on communities and they focused on the city janesville but when i knew it there were two janesvilles There was the Janesville Craig, where all the wealthy people lived. They were excellent in basketball. They had a lot of advantages, a lot of resources. And then there was another high school, the one on the outskirts of town, Janesville Parker. That's where my dad taught. And they were not so good. If Parker had a good basketball player, his family moved across town, so he'd go to Craig. Or Craig would rewrite the boundaries. Craig was where Paul Ryan went to school, by the way. Some good people went there, too. But to me, they all looked a little like Paul Ryan. Beautiful people. Winners. That was my view of them. They bent the rules, and they won. I grew up outside of this. I grew up where nobody wanted to live, except for those of us who actually did. We liked it well enough with a kind of stubborn pride. And there was another city nearby a city to the south of Janesville called Beloit, which had a large black population. I learned years later that this wasn't an accident. This wasn't the product of choice, necessarily. It was the product of years of discriminatory housing practices. Realtors in Janesville made it clear that Janesville was for white people. That's Paul Ryan's town. And those of us who watched Janesville Craig and Beloit Memorial, the rich white kids in Janesville versus the black kids from Beloit. Some epic battles on the basketball court. The cultural differences were amazing. Craig had a crowd full of privileged kids. And in a way, it's kind of funny to call them privileged because eventually I left Wisconsin and learned what real privilege is. But they were privileged within a small world of southern Wisconsin People living on the coasts could probably buy a house in Janesville with their spare change. But in this world of small town Wisconsin, the Janesville Craig kids were privileged and they acted like it. They lorded it over us. Children of the corn, they called us. Welcome to America, they would sneer when we came into their town. You can imagine the atmosphere when Janesville Craig had a good team and Bloyd Memorial had a good team. It was electric. The parking lots were crowded with people. Fights would break out. Shouting. One side of the stands was almost all white and the other side was almost all black. And my friends and I, who were visitors to this world, always rooted for Beloit. It was like Magic Johnson's Showtime Lakers versus the plotting Boston Celtics. The teams might be even in talent, but one team had the style. That we admired. And Parker, the school where my dad taught and, and coached, the afterthought school, the one that lost its athletes to Craig, they were terrible. Sometimes they'd win a handful of games. In a good season, they'd finish 500 until Larry Knudsen. Somehow this guy slipped through the cracks. Somehow he was the best player in Janesville and he didn't wind up going to Craig. He went to Parker. He was a star, and he emerged from the cornfields, and he stayed loyal to the place where he was from, and he was awesome, a smooth player, a scorer. Parker beat Craig, and Parker was suddenly the best team in Janesville, and it freaked Craig out. And I remember opening the newspaper one day and seeing a picture of Larry Knudsen, my new hero, in an interview with the head basketball coach, a man who I loved, but who was also, I was also kind of afraid of. My dad's boss was how I viewed him. And the head basketball coach said something that the editors of the local paper had pulled out of the article and put in large font right next to the picture of Larry Knudsen. The quote was, When you're sitting on top of all that talent and it just comes pouring out of you. That was it. That was the quote, dot, dot, dot. When you're sitting on top of all that talent, and it just comes pouring out of you, dot, dot, dot. The quote from this great figure of a man who was a teacher all week, a head coach on Friday nights, a minister on the weekends. He was not a man at a loss for words. But he trailed off when he was talking about Larry Knudsen. Dot, dot, dot. Speechless. I've never forgotten that quote. When you're sitting on top of all that talent and it just comes pouring out of you. The quote jumps into my mind now and then when I see someone who rises like a comet. Chris Rock struggled on Saturday Night Live and then all of a sudden, wow, his stand up a virtuoso performance, or the prodigies like Mozart or Paul McCartney or Keats, Michael Jackson, Ken Griffey Jr., Prince, Aaron Rodgers, Lionel Messi, guys like that. Something in them gets unlocked, or their moment arises. Suddenly their gifts are there for the world to see. And the rest of us watch and say, when you're sitting on top of all that talent, and it just comes pouring out of you. And that's kind of the Gene Tumor story. That's the writer we're going to be talking about today. And I started with the story about basketball, not just for the quote about talent, which made me think of Gene Tumor, or which Gene Tumor made me think of, I should say, but because I also want to talk about identity. All those years I spent at those basketball games and at the Pizza Hut and the shopping malls, going into Janesville, going into Beloit, going to high school with the sons and daughters of farmers and factory workers, and thinking, who am I? How do I fit? And as I started to grow and develop, and I started working and traveling, going to school, and I roamed from Wisconsin to Chicago to Italy and Taiwan and Seattle and California and Tibet and India and China and Africa and New York and D.C., all those moves, all those relocations, all those places, all those groups of people I lived next to and among and around, where did I fit? And people would ask me where I was from, and I would say Wisconsin, but without much conviction. Was I really from there? How? How did that happen? There were times it didn't seem possible. It seemed so far away. But then as place after place after place shuffled by, I'd think, well, California was six months. I only lived there six months. I can't claim that. Can't say that's where I'm from. Wisconsin was 18 years. 18 formative years. Of course I'm from there. There's no other place I could be from. So well, I would say that, and people would say, oh, well, you must love cheese. And I'd chafe at that. Why? I don't even like cheese. Especially, no more than anyone else cheese doesn't define my life and then one year it hit me my god my grandparents were swiss and they came to wisconsin to open a cheese factory <laughs> i do i do have some roots in wisconsin in america's dairy land i am a cheese head that really is my origin but it's a struggle when you love something else something like literature the bigger world and you bristle at the characteristics that get ascribed to you for being from this small town in rural Wisconsin, the provinciality of it, the racism that's there, the small town mentality. When you feel like you never really fit in when you were there, it's hard to accept that those were your origins. And so even though I'm not a minority by any reasonable definition, I still have this sense of being an outsider, of trying to fit in, of being tagged by other people's conception of who I am. Maybe I should say I have this sense of not really knowing how I ever fit in. Trying to resist categorizations. Trying to figure out if I need to accept the categories that other people create or if I can be my own category. To Take things I like a la carte to build my own identity. That's an easy set of choices for me as a white, straight male living in America. My choices, the ones I'm talking about, are on the margins. It hurt when those guys at Craig would laugh about my town. Think they know who I was based on that town, and it it happened throughout my life. It still does. You, 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 you're from there. Ha, 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 ha. That's how it sounds in my ears sometimes. So I don't bring it up not something I mention when I first meet someone, but that's lucky that I'm able to do that. It's lucky that it's, it's not the same as other stereotypes based on things like skin color, other categories. It's not the same as facing real discrimination in its ugliest and most brutal and most dangerous form. You could say the same thing about gender and sexual orientation and religion. There's a reason why we don't look to John Updike to give us the news about identity the way we look to say, Alice Walker, or to Jean Toomer. Alice Walker herself looked to Jean Toomer. In talking about Kane, his masterpiece, she said, It has, quote, been reverberating in me to an astonishing degree. I love it passionately. Could not possibly exist without it. Maya Angelou said, quote, This book should be on all readers and writers' desks and in their minds. And it's true. It's and, end quote. It's true. It's an astonishing book. He was a man sitting on top of all that talent and it came pouring out of him. Dot, dot, dot. Let me be clear. There's a lot of hard work that went into that talent, both for Larry Knudsen and for Gene Toomer. Toomer wrote for years before Cain poured out of him. And instead of just talent, he was sitting on top of a lot more. Education, an amazing family history, his own struggles with identity, with who he was and where he came from and who he was supposed to be. It was in the air at the time, this search for identity. We talked about this in the Harlem Renaissance episode. And Gene Toomer was a great hero to the Harlem Renaissance writers. And he was also an essential part of that other group that was searching for identity, the Lost Generation writers, who in some ways ran parallel to the Harlem Renaissance, but he didn't. He wasn't parallel. He was in both worlds. Greenwich Village had its thing going on, and Harlem had a different literary scene, and a handful of people straddled them both. And Gene Toomer probably did this as much or more than anyone. Gene Toomer's journey is a true American story. We'll go into all all of that because it's fascinating, far more dramatic and compelling than my little postage stamp of the world his trip from New York and D.C. to Georgia, and the unlocking that came when he first heard Negro spirituals, like the one I played at the beginning, coming out of the land in Georgia. That's all more important than my story, some white kid living in a small town in Wisconsin, right? Except it's connected. That little postage stamp, I've already told you that race was a big element there, too? Race is always a big element in America, even when it doesn't seem to be. It's always present, even when it's not present. There's another thing about living as a white guy in a small town in Wisconsin. That's where Gene Tumor wound up. Married to a white woman living as a white man in a small town in Wisconsin not far from my town. He was just a few miles from my grandparents. They probably sold him some cheese. Gene Toomer, today, on the History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups.
0: The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. <laughs>
1: was quite an introduction. I bet you thought we forgot all about the theme song. I'm Jack Wilson. Did I say that already? You probably figured it out. You're a clever sort of person from what I can tell. And you like literature. Well, this is a treat because our book today, Cain, is amazing. It's a really a wonderful book that more people should read. And Gene Toomer is one of those fascinating individuals who just won't leave you alone. Once you start reading about him, you want to know more. There are a lot of claims about Gene Tumor, claims for him or claims on him. But he's slippery and elusive, and well, let me save my ultimate conclusion about him for the end. We have to have something to aim for, right? So here we go. Another ad free version of the history of literature, and yes, you're very welcome. I'm happy to do it. Going commando, as my producer calls it. <laughs> we'll have more on this later. Some changes are a timing. Some, I mean, some times are a change. I messed that up. Some changes are a brewing. Can I say that? Some changes are a brewing. Sounds like I'm talking about Macbeth's witches. Some changes are a stir. Witches stir things too. I can't get rid of these witches. Changes. Changes. That's what I'm reduced to. Changes. Let's sell all the fish that way. Changes. Postcards audible, website, Facebook, iTunes, email ah, this portion of the episode has been brought to you by Neanderthal Jack Wilson, the monosyllabic stuffed doll available at bookstores everywhere and supermarkets and car washes and landfills. Oh boy, we're off to another great start. you see you see what happens when you're sitting on all this lack of talent and suddenly it starts oozing out of you. Welcome to my podcast. Welcome to my world. Gene Toomer. Let's get back on track. Gene Toomer was born in Washington, D.C. in 1894. Let's put that in a little perspective. Scott Fitzgerald was born in 1896. William Faulkner was born in 1897. Hemingway in 1899. Langston Hughes in 1902. Sherwood Anderson, whose book Winesburg, Ohio, helped influence Gene Tumors cane, was born a little earlier, 1876. T.S. Eliot, another influence on tumor, artistically. Artistically, Toomer sort of fused together. Winesburg, Ohio, and the wasteland added a lot of his own. T.S. Eliot was just a little older, born in 1888. So, there's Gene Toomer, born into a prominent black family in Washington, D.C. Actually, prominent doesn't really do it justice, and to call it a black family doesn't quite capture it either. Toomer's whole life was spent in a process of naming or definition or self-characterizing who he was, what he should be called, what race he was. Most observers viewed him as racially indeterminate, and he himself had a foot in both worlds, so to speak. Let's start with his grandfather on his mother's side, and I should Interject that I'm very much indebted to an essay by Henry Louis Gates and Rudolph Byrd for this window into Toomer's background. So Toomer's grandfather on his mother's side was a man named Pinckney Benton Stewart Pinchback, or PBS Pinchback, as he was known. PBS Pinchback was born a free Negro in 1837 in Georgia. His father was Major Pinchback, a white Virginia planter. His mother was a mulatto slave. PBS had several brothers who passed as white, just left the family and disappeared into the white world. PBS, on the other hand, became one of the most prominent Negroes in America. He led a regiment of black soldiers fighting in the Civil War on the Union side. After the war, he became the first black lieutenant governor of Louisiana, and for a period of about a month or so, he was the acting governor. By the time his grandson... Gene Toomer, came along. Pinchback was wealthy and living in D.C., and he was an overpowering figure. Toomer later recalled just how much he admired him and how the world seemed to revolve around him and how awestruck he was when his grandfather would take him to meetings with businessmen and politicians and other cultural figures. He was a power broker. So, There's a huge role model, a huge influence. Where does that leave young Gene in terms of race? His grandfather was light-skinned, and his grandfather's father was white. He was prominent in the black community. He identified as black. One might think that would leave Gene, who had been given the last name of Pinchback, by now because his father had abandoned the family, He wasn't Gene yet, either. One might think that young Nathan Pinchback would identify with being in the black world. The heir to a great black family. PBS Pinchback's grandson. Not exactly. Not exactly. They lived in a white neighborhood. He played with white children. When it was time to go to school, he went to a black school. And here's the the detail that I can't quite get over. Years later, he wrote that he suspected that his grandfather great PBS pinchback, the first black lieutenant governor of Louisiana, had been passing as black. That he was actually white, like his father and his brothers, but that he had chosen to identify as black so that he could take command of the black regiment in the Civil War and eventually become a famous black politician to shore up the black vote. There's a biography of Barack Obama right now that suggests something a little similar. Obama, was headed to a career in politics in Chicago, had to wrestle with what it meant for for him to be in this divide, this world of white and black. He had a white girlfriend. He himself had a white mother. What did all that mean for him politically? What did it mean for him personally? What did it mean if he's headed to a career in po- politics, he's basing himself in Chicago? The story has a happy ending confusion, if he had it, seems to have disappeared. It, it helped that he met the wonderful Michelle and that he seems to have, he himself seems to have the kind of mind and sensibility and personality, the inner stability to figure out his identity and to settle into something comfortable, something that fits him and who he believes he is, who he, how he sees himself. And it helps that he was doing this in the late 20th century and the early 21st century. We've had all of our predecessors who have helped point the way for how to do this. We live in a world that doesn't have quite the same uh, rigidity that Gene Tumor had. Barack Obama floated in between communities, but he was in the same location. Gene Tumor, he faced a different world, a segregated one. Black schools, white friends, black family members, white communities, himself identified as white half the time, black the other. He had a choice available to him. And he had other choices to make. What should he call himself? His grandfather insisted on Pinchback. He met his father once when he was about age six. His father's last name was Toomer. What about politics? He wasn't as interested as his grandfather was. He wasn't going to be like his grandfather. He liked reading and literature, high art, like his uncle, who squirreled himself away with a pile of books and who encouraged young Jean to love books too, good books, solid literature, poetry, and fiction. And his grandmother, whom he loved, the woman with the fiery spirit, who lived in the shadow of PBS Pinchback, but who impressed everyone who looked past the figure of her husband and got to know the woman of the household. These figures in his life. His mother, these towering, totemic figures. And then, in his early adulthood, his... Grandparents and his uncle got sick, and he cared for them, so he had all that pressure as well. He was writing now, poems and stories, and setting them aside, nothing living up to his standards. But meanwhile, he's practically locked away, a young man full of energy, trying to live up to ideals that others in his great family have set in place for him. They let him know that they're disappointed in him, except for his supportive uncle. That was the view of his grandfather. A writer? Who needs a writer? We need people of action. We don't need thinkers in this family. We need doers. All this pressure was building in Gene Tumor as he shuttled from New York to D.C., caring for people whom he couldn't quite please. His grandfather from Georgia, a place he'd never been. The rural South, the agrarian landscape, the hot sun, the people... The dark-skinned people, the people wearing clothes that he didn't wear and singing songs that he didn't sing. Those were some of his roots. Those were in his grandfather, even though his grandfather had left it behind. And it transmuted to Gene, who had never seen it firsthand. Until he did. Until he got the chance to travel to Georgia for a few months on a business trip, working at a job that he leapt at because it got him out of the sick rooms of D.C., which he could endure no longer. And he rode the train to Georgia, and he heard the Negro spirituals, like the one I played at the beginning, and something in him unlocked a great dam of pressure. The holding back of all his creativity, his truest self, his doubts and fears and uncertainties, and his creative power, and his genius, and his artistry, and his longing for his ancestors and his determination to be something new and something free and something loyal to his art in the way that the moon is loyal to the sun. All that cracked open, and suddenly he was writing sketches and stories and poems and dialogues about the South, about the Georgian Southerners, and the landscape and the earth and the music that seemed to well up and flow from the earth itself. He channeled all that and passed it through his singular vision through his refined literary sensibility, through all the books his uncle had encouraged him to read and that he had absorbed, and through all his beliefs and all his knowledge and his command of literary history and his vision of what a modern literature could be. And he produced a book, Cain, so full of this energy and vitality, his masterpiece, which he never again equaled, even though he wrote for decades afterwards, never even came close. It was this book, Cain, named after the sugarcane fields of Georgia. And maybe a cane of a hurricane is appropriate too, and cane is a verb, the caning of black-skinned people at the hands of the white man. And Cain, with an I, the son of Adam and Eve, who worked the soil and killed his brother Abel, because God preferred Abel. God chose Abel. So Cain lived in this stew of jealousy and murderous rage until he killed him. And then he lied about it. Cain, with a mark that God put on him, which Protestants later told everyone meant that he had dark skin. Gene Toomer wrote these vignettes about girls in Georgia, girls growing into women, and the effect that this had on men and the lust and violence it generated. Gene Toomer harnessed a lot of strong emotions and strong forces in these stories. As they came together, he started ordering them. And placing poems in between, like a collage worker finding the right combinations, or the, the painter who sees the whole canvas, or the composer stitching together the phrases and harmonies into a single symphony. Hemingway was doing something similar in his first story collection, adding poems, adding flashes of insight. And there was Winesburg, Ohio, painting a similar portrait of characters and. There was the wasteland, channeling Western civilization through a modern vernacular, sly and knowing, deferential, referential, drumming out a new vocabulary to match the ideas of the time in fragments. But Gene Toomer, he was the one who captured all this, and race, too. He was like a coiled spring waiting to explode. He caught that lightning, America's lightning, and got it onto the page all that talent, and then it comes pouring out of you. Dot, dot, dot. Well, Cain the novel might leave us speechless, agog at the achievement, the way it twists and turns and keeps opening up new windows. Opening, 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 like a fugue or like a symphony. It's a masterclass in rich, resonant prose. There's another dot, dot, dot. What came after the book for Gene Toomer, the dot, dot, dot of his life? Let's spend a little more time with Cain first. Here's the way it begins, with a story called Carintha. Carintha. Her skin is like dusk on the eastern horizon. Oh, can't you see it? Oh, can't you see it? Her skin is like dusk on the eastern horizon when the sun goes down. Men had always wanted her, this Corintha, even as a child. Corintha, carrying beauty, perfect as dusk when the sun goes down. Old men rode her hobby horse upon their knees. Young men danced with her at frolics, when they should have been dancing with their grown-up girls. God grant us youth, secretly prayed the old men. Young fellows counted the time to pass before she would be old enough to mate with them. This interest of the male who wishes to ripen a growing thing too soon, could mean no good to her. Corintha at twelve was a wild flash that told the other folks just what it was to live. At sunset, when there was no wind, and the pine smoke from over by the sawmill hugged the earth, and you couldn't see more than a few feet in front, her sudden darting past you was like a vivid color, a bit of vivid color, like a black bird that flashes in light. With the other children, one could hear, some distance off, their feet flopping in the two-inch dust. Corintha's running was a whirr. It had the sound of the red dust that sometimes makes a spiral in the road. At dusk, during the hush just after the sawmill had closed down, and before any of the women had started their supper-getting-ready songs, her voice, high-pitched, shrill, would put one's ears to itching but no one ever thought to make her stop because of it. She stoned the cows and beat her dog and fought the other children. Even the preacher who caught her at mischief told himself that she was as innocently lovely as a November cotton flower. Already, rumors were out about her. Homes in Georgia are most often built on the two-room plan. In one, you cook and eat. In the other, you sleep. And there... Love goes on. Corintha had seen or heard, perhaps she had felt her parents loving. One could but imitate one's parents, for to follow them was the way of God. She played home with a small boy who was not afraid to do her bidding. That started the whole thing. Old men could no longer ride her hobby horse upon their knees, but young men counted faster. Her skin is like dusk, oh can't you see it, her skin is like dusk when the sun goes down. Corintha is a woman, she who carries beauty, perfect as dusk when the sun goes down. She has been married many times. Old men remind her that a few years back they rode her hobby horse upon their knees. Corintha smiles and indulges them when she is in the mood for it. She has contempt for them. Corintha is a woman. Young men run stills to make her money. Young men go to the big cities and run on the road. Young men go away to college. They all want to bring her money. These are the young men who thought that all they had to do was to count time. But Corintha is a woman, and she has had a child. The child fell out of her womb onto a bed of pine needles in the forest. Pine needles are smooth and sweet. They are elastic to the feet of rabbits. The sawmill was nearby, its pyramidal sawdust pile smoldered. It is a year before one completely burns. Meanwhile, the smoke curls up and hangs in odd wraiths about the trees, curls up and spreads itself out over the valley. Weeks after Corintha returned home, the smoke was so heavy you tasted it in water. Someone made a song. Smoke is on the hills, rise up. Smoke is on the hills, oh, rise and take my soul to Jesus. Corintha is a woman. Men do not know that the soul of her was a growing thing ripened too soon. They will bring their money. They will die not having found it out. Corintha at 20, carrying beauty. Perfect as dusk when the sun goes down. Corintha. Her skin is like dusk on the eastern horizon. Oh, can't you see it? Oh, can't you see it? Her skin is like dusk on the eastern horizon. When the sun goes down, goes down. And we're off. Corintha is followed by two poems, Reapers and November Cotton Flowers. You can hear The voice, Jean Toomer's voice in Corintha, it's not one of someone in the town, but a godlike observer. Insightful, wise, all-seeing. It's a majestic, magisterial voice. At other points in the novel, we get a snapshot of the narrator as an outsider, as an observer. He becomes more of a character. Someone slightly misunderstood or distrusted by the locals, someone earning his way into the community. But it's this omniscient voice that feels the most genuine to me one Who might not know Georgia, W.E.B. Du Bois had his doubts about whether Gene Toomer really knew Georgia, but who knows literature and who knows humanity? Toomer's whole life he sought to write in a language, quote, neither black nor white, end quote. And he has that in Kane. He achieved it there. A fusion of all the modernist concerns, fragmentation and dislocation, and a quest for an identity along with the great soulful cry of the South. He thought there was an era that was ending, and Cain was his way of saying goodbye to it. That's what he thought people didn't get when they wanted him to write. A second Cain, a third Cain, a fourth Cain. Keep writing Cain. Give us a sequel. Set one in Mississippi. But he couldn't. It was Georgia, the land of Georgia, the people of Georgia, the vanishing way of life, his own connection through his grandfather. His grandfather who died. It was the way the songs came to him at that point, in that moment. That was his inspiration. It came and it went. As that moment passed. Kane was a sensation in both worlds. The world of Harlem, the world of Greenwich Village. He was a hero. But he resented both groups. He felt misunderstood and mistreated by both. And here's the dot, dot, dot of Toomer's life. He started traveling. He came under the influence of a philosopher and starting, started writing more polemical works. Then he was in Wisconsin, where he went to Portage, Wisconsin, and set up shop in a kind of artistic community. He married a woman named Marjorie, had a daughter he named Marjorie. Then he married another woman named Marjorie. Then he had an affair with a woman who was not named Marjorie. Her name was Margaret. That's branching out. At his second wedding, which was in Taos, New Mexico, one of his former lovers was in the audience. Her name? Georgia O'Keeffe. Yes, the Georgia O'Keeffe, the painter. What a strange cameo. Georgia. Georgia on his mind, I guess. In my edition of Kane, the essay by Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Rudolph P. Byrd concludes with photographs of the documents in Toomer's life, the way you can tell the story of his life through documents, and in particular, the line on the document, the census response, the marriage certificate, the birth certificate, the line that asked for tumor's race. Some of them state that he is black. Some, like his marriage certificate, state that he is white. It was the struggle for him throughout his life. He was in a position to be either. He was in a position to be both. Why couldn't he choose for himself? Or to put this another way, why did he have to choose? Gene Toomer died in 1967, leaving us with his legacy. His influence is hard to measure. We know it's vast. He was a seminal figure in the Harlem Renaissance, cited by Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes and so many of the other key figures of the era that Cain was the book. Cain was the one. Cain was what started it all, what showed them all, we spoke already of the revival, the later generations, of authors who were influenced, Alice Walker's and Maya Angelou's of the world. And today, poet Elizabeth Alexander, an amazing poet, we spoke about her in the episode with Ronica Darr. Ronica chose Alexander's poem, which was written for the Obama inauguration. It's one of her favorite poems or her favorite works. Elizabeth Alexander was influenced by Gene Toomer, too. Listen to this poem and hear the echoes of Toomer and the direct acknowledgement of his influence. The poem is called Toomer by Elizabeth Alexander. Toomer I did not wish to, quote, rise above or, quote, move beyond my race. I wished to contemplate who I was beyond my body this container of flesh. I made up a language in which to exist. I wondered what God breathed into me. I wondered who I was beyond this complicated, milk-skinned, body I exercised it, watched it change and grow. I spun like a dervish to see what would happen. Oh, to be a Negro is... is... To be a Negro is to be gene tumor. Alexander uses a dash rather than an ellipses, but I think the effect is similar. To be a Negro is dot, dot, dot. No, to be a Negro is period. It's is. It's to be. It's not to be something. It's to be period. Just like any other category of human. It's the human, not the category, that counts. That's the real legacy of Gene Toomer, how this man who wrote about the South, whose encounter with black Americans in Georgia unlocked the artistry brewing inside him, ultimately wrote a masterpiece about human beings, a work that was local, but also universal. It's a transcendent work. I'll let Alice Walker have the last word here on Gene Toomer about his book Cain and about the figure of Gene Toomer who straddled those worlds all of his life. She said, quote, I think Gene Toomer would want us to keep Cain's beauty, but let him go. End quote. That's Gene Toomer's literary legacy in a beautiful concise phrase. His work is there for us to enjoy and admire and celebrate and seek to understand, but our understanding of who he was, and whatever claims we might try to impose upon him, is not something he willingly gave us. He shared his work with us, but his identity was his and his alone. (laughs) That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm glad you listened, just as I'm very glad for all of you who send me those wonderful emails. Keep them coming to jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, Wilson Author at gmail.com. And I'm glad for all the wonderful reviews on iTunes and all the people who are subscribing, finding the show, telling their friends about them. And yes, all the listeners who have told me that you'd like to buy me a coffee. I'm going to try to get that going soon. I love coffee. Thank you. And all of you have thanked me for being good company. I can think of no better tribute. That's my whole goal as a podcaster. Be good company. Make the world a little less lonely. And a little smarter. Maybe. And in keeping with the spirit of Gene Toomer, maybe the point of this podcast is to help us all figure out who we are and what the heck we're doing. Trying to live together as this crazy planet spins around. When the past clashes with the present and cultures and nations and literary movements intertwine and overlap and weave in and out of our consciousness. Sometimes in a positive way like beautiful scarves wrapped around our neck. And sometimes like serpents strangling us and making us gasp for breath and fight for our lives. So... There's that goal too, but mostly it's the less lonely thing. Let's stick with that. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.